No other example could be better in all the world for us to follow than the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the words of Mark chapter 7, verse 37. Of Christ, after they had seen His miracles, they said, He has done all things well. He's made both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Jesus is that wonderful master example and what a privilege and honor it is to follow in His footsteps. 1 Peter 2.21 The passage that was mentioned for us tonight says, To this we were called, because Christ also suffered and died for us, listen now, leaving us an example that we should follow in His footsteps. What a wonderful pattern. We have set before us to follow. And friend, people were watching the life of Jesus in the first century. And what a powerful example and teaching that submitted for them. You know, as you think about people watching examples, they watch my example. And they watch your example. And they do try to learn from it. And at times, imitate it. I'm reminded of a story I recently heard country preacher was out working in his garden and he was putting up some trellises in his garden for his plants to grow on and, and the wood was a little hard and the nails weren't too good, but he was working on it anyway. And as soon as he started working, he noticed the neighbor boy across the street was watching for a long, long time and watching real curiously what he was doing. And so he became, continued his work, finished everything up, and then he went over to the young boy and he said, Sir, you've been watching a long time now. He said, I just wonder, are you wanting a few pointers on how to garden? And the little man said, well, no, not really. He said, I was just watching to see what word a preacher might say if he hammered his thumb. Well, people are watching me, and they're watching you. And friend, our example does have a powerful influence on other people. Young people, others in the world, those who maybe are young Christians, at times they might try to emulate the example of a brother in Christ. I heard another story recently about a president of the United States of America that I had not heard before. This story was told of President Calvin Coolidge. He said he invited some of his friends uh, from the Vermont area to come to the White House to dine. These people didn't really know what dining at the White House might be like, and so they were a little nervous, especially about their table manners and their etiquette, how they were supposed to act. And so before they got there, the couple decided, whatever President Coolidge does, that's what we're going to do also. And so that worked out pretty good. Wherever he put his napkin, they put their napkin. Whatever fork he used, they used. When he took a drink, they'd take it. And on and on it went. And everything was going pretty well right up to the time that they served coffee. And then Mr. Coolidge did something. President Coolidge did something a little different. He took his coffee that was served in a saucer, and he took it out and he poured it in that saucer. Well, the guests thought, this must be what we're supposed to do too. So they took their coffee and they poured it in the saucer. Then President Coolidge took a little cream and he took a little sugar and he stirred it up real well in the saucer. And so, well, I thought that's what we'll do as well. They took a little cream and they took a little sugar and they stirred it real good in the saucer. And then President Coolidge set it down by the table for the cat to drink out of. 
Well, that's about as far as they could go in the power of that example. It did them pretty good. But you understand what I'm saying tonight. That people look at my example, people look at your example, and no doubt Jesus is the greatest example to ever live. And tonight, we want to think about what is it? What is it specifically that Jesus taught that can have such an impact on my life and yours by His example? You know, we could have chosen so many different areas to look at tonight, but I want to focus on some that I hope tonight will be very practical that we can take out in our everyday life and that will make us stronger Christians and better examples in the world. Could I share with you one more passage about the power of example? You know, for a long time, I missed this verse, I think, when I was studying my Bible. Would you look in Acts chapter 4? And friend, I think this is why. This is why a lesson like unto this, how Jesus teaches us by example and how we can take those teachings and teach others is such an important lesson for the church today. Look in Acts chapter 4. This is one of my favorite passages about the power of example. Look in Acts chapter 4. The context is Peter and John have just been told by the Jews of that day, by the religious elite, don't preach the name of Jesus. Uh, why are you filling Jerusalem with this doctrine? By what power, by what authority are you doing these things? They respond by saying, it's through the name of Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other. He's the chief cornerstone, in essence, that you left out of your spiritual superstructure. And then, as they're sitting there, having been rebuked by these men, they're kind of wondering what's going on. And watch Acts chapter 4, Verse number 13. If you don't think there's a power to example, look at this verse with me. The Bible says, Now when they had saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived they were uneducated and untrained men. Here's Peter and John, and they just rebuked the religious elite of their day. And they put them back on their heels, and they're thinking, how did these untrained, uneducated fishermen do this? And then it's kind of like in the cartoon where you've got the light bulb that comes on, right? Now watch the next words of Acts 4.13. Then they realized they had been with Jesus. Now friend, you talk about the power of example. Oh, to God that people would look at my life and people would look at your life, not for us to see to be glorified, but rather that they would realize we're trying to live the way Jesus wants us to. And what a powerful attribute. That would be for the church worldwide. All right, so let's think about some of the lessons Jesus taught by example. Would you open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 1, verse number 35. The first lesson that I want us to see tonight that I hope will be really practical is that we learn about the power of prayer from the example of Jesus. Look in Mark chapter 1. I want you to look with me in verse number 35. That's Mark chapter 1, verse number 35. What was Jesus' prayer life like? What was His example that He set for us when He prayed? Here are some insights into that. The Bible says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus went out, departed to a solitary place, and there He prayed. Now friend, what do we learn from the example of Jesus about prayer here? He got up early. 
He rose very early in the morning. He wanted to beat the crowd, beat the rat race, and get out ahead of the day, if we can use that language. Uh, very early in the morning, he got up, went to a solitary place. He got away from all the hustle and the bustle and the noise. And I don't know about you, but all the notifications you get on your phone when you like to throw it up against the wall sometimes, right? All the noise and the stuff that goes on. And what did Jesus do? He went out to a solitary place, and there he prayed. He got up early. He took time to spend with God in prayer. He got away from the hustle and the bustle of life that if we're not careful can distract us from that. And he started his day in prayer to God. Friend, what do we learn from this example? We learn how Jesus felt and how we should feel about the power of prayer in our lives. Now, you think with me for just a moment. Think practically. We talk about it. We sing about it. I know we, we believe what the Bible says about prayer, but do we really take prayer seriously? Do we really pray like we ought to pray? If you could have direct communication with God, and if you could receive help from heaven, wouldn't you do it? Well, friend, is that not what prayer is? Let us therefore come boldly, to the throne of grace, that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. Through the avenue of prayer, I can approach the very throne of God, the God who spoke and the world came into existence, and the Bible says I can receive help to overcome this life. How we need to utilize the power of prayer. Alright, let's think about some passages about prayer together. You're reminded of James 5 verse 16. The Bible, probably one of the most well-known passages, the Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, what? Overcomes much. Prayer has the power to overcome or to conquer in this life. God is the source of that power and He knows and He cares. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 7. The Bible says this, one of my favorite passages about God, passages about God and about prayer. Listen to these words now. Cast all your cares upon Him. Why? God cares for you. God says, I care. I want to help. Cast, and the little Greek, Greek world is to, to hurl as though we're going to throw it up to God. We're going to give it to God. And God, who's more than able, cares and is going to help those who are His children, and if it's according to His will. You know, when I think of passages that sometimes we overlook about prayer, there's one in Luke 18. Would you turn there with me? This is one of my favorite as it deals with the power of prayer to help someone through the struggles of life. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse number 1. Jesus makes a very simple statement, but it's so, so powerful and practical here. The Bible simply says, Then Jesus spoke a parable to them saying, Listen to this now, Men always ought to pray and never lose heart. What's it mean to lose heart? To get discouraged? Do you ever get discouraged? Does life ever throw you a curveball? Do sometimes things not go your way? Do you ever have difficulties and, and challenges and everything don't go the way you want every day? Well, friend, all of us feel that way from time to time. How do you overcome discouragement and being disheartened. Listen again to what Jesus said. Men ought always to pray and never lose heart. That sounds a lot like what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. 
pray without ceasing. Look at the power we as Christians can obtain through God's help and with the power of prayer. Now, let's speak practically for a moment. I want you to think about your own prayer life. I want you to think about where you're at right now as it relates to prayer. I want you to think about the example we just read of Jesus. He got up early. Maybe he set his alarm clock a little early to do that. Ooh, can you imagine people doing that? He got up early. He went to a solitary place. He started his day with prayer. And now let's think about our own prayer life. What's the first thing you do when you get up? Maybe if you're like me, you run for the Folgers can, right? Going to make a little coffee, put a little water in there, and hope it doesn't take too long. What ought to be the first thing that we do every day? Pray. How's your prayer life? Are you praying? Am I praying like I ought to? Are we really utilizing the example of Jesus as it relates to prayer? All right, let's talk about a second way Jesus taught by example. And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 12 with me. And here's an example of Jesus as it relates to our need to refute religious error. Not only does Jesus teach us by example about prayer, Jesus also teaches us by His example that the Christian from time to time has to stand up, be bold for the Lord, and refute religious error. Look in Mark chapter 12, and I want you to see the context of what's going on here. Jesus is dealing with the Sadducees, verse number 18, who say there is no resurrection. They then come to Jesus with this elaborate argument, verse 19, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and leaves no, his wife behind, leaves no children, his brother's got to take up his wife, raise an offering for his brother. And so here's their kind of scenario. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. The second took her, he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her, left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. And now here's their big, religious, tough question. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall they be? For all seven had her as wife. Now, they're thinking by this time, Jesus' head is spinning. You know, you've probably sat and talked to people, maybe in religious situations, where you thought, how did you get in a mess like this? But imagine, seven husbands, they all had her, no children. Whose wife is she going to be? Jesus says, nobody's. What? Nobody's. Nobody's in the resurrection. For on the other side, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And Jesus goes on to prove that from the Scripture. But I want you to watch what Jesus said in Mark 12, Verse number 24. Jesus answered them and said, Are you therefore not mistaken? Do you not therefore greatly err? The King James says. Why? Not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Then he goes back to the Old Testament. Abraham, God is a God of the living, not the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob showing that they were alive, not dead, and proving there was a resurrection. But what did Jesus really teach us from example here? That at times, Christians, that's me and you, we're not talking about the elders, we're not talking about the that's every Christian, has to stand up for the truth and refute religious error. Friend, listen very carefully. <clears throat> this is such an important matter because there are multiplied millions of people in our world who are being taught religious error that is going to send their soul to hell. Somebody has got to stand up and say, wait a minute, 
That's not what the Bible teaches. Hold on, here's what the Scripture says, and let's think about that. Are you not therefore greatly mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God? Now, is there a right way to do that? Sure there is. Are we going to be mean and unkind? Of course not. But are we going to speak the truth in love? Absolutely. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 15. Two passages that remind us specifically of this responsibility. Jude wrote to the Christians in that day and age, and he said, well, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. I wanted to write to encourage you about the salvation we have. I found it necessary to write to you. Why? Exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Like from the example of Jesus, Christians have got to be bold enough, know the Word well enough, that we rise up and oppose error. Ephesians 5.11 Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather expose or reprove them. Now, since Jesus did that, since that's the example that I follow, the Scripture teaches that's part of my responsibility. Friend, that's something that each one of us wants to and needs to be prepared to do. Now, maybe there'll be some studying we need to do. Maybe we need to work on certain areas. But it's something every one of us can do. Now, let me mention specifically two or three doctrines, especially that Christians want to be well equipped in to stand up and teach the truth on. I often hear people, I hear it real regular. And so, you know, I think, well, people, where are people getting this? I hear people say, uh, somebody may be talking to somebody or preaching on the radio, or you may flip through channel and see it on TV, and somebody says, you want to be saved? All you've got to do is say the sinner's prayer. And it usually goes something like this. They'll say, you know, dear Jesus, I recognize you as Lord and Savior. I now ask you to come into my heart and save me. Friend, multiplied millions a whole host of people have been taught that's what they need to do to be saved. A lot of people have prayed that Billy Graham and Franklin Graham have grown around the country telling people and millions have bought into it. What's the Bible say about that? I'm going to tell you everything the Bible says about the sinner's prayer. Here it is. Are you ready? There it was. That was everything the Bible said about the sinner's prayer. It's not in there. You can read from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation chapter 22 verse 21 and you won't find the sinner's prayer mentioned even one time. Isn't that amazing? I, I hear it so much, I think, well, it's got to be on this page. Maybe Where is it at? Not even in there one time. And it's a doctrine people are teaching left and right. I was uh, teaching, preaching a gospel meeting back in my hometown of, of Groveton, Texas, East Texas, and uh, I preached in that meeting that the sinner's prayer was not a biblical doctrine, that you can't find it anywhere in the Bible, that men make it up, and that it's a lie. And so after the service, I remember a lady, she had heard me speak about that, and so she made a beeline to me. And so I thought to myself, well, this is about to get real interesting. And so she comes up to me and she says, she said, Preacher, she said, I heard what you said about the sinner's prayer. I said, yes, ma'am. Uh, that's what the Bible teaches. She said, well, I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask my pastor. I said, well, that's good. I said, I hope you'll go home and ask your pastor and whatever Bible verses he gives you, you bring those back tomorrow night and we'll talk about it. So the day passed, tomorrow night comes, uh, we get to the building early and she's one of the first ones there, walks through the door and right again she heads up to me. I thought, well, let's see how this goes. And so she comes up to me, she says, Preacher, she said, I asked my pastor about the sinner's prayer not being in the Bible. He said, you was right. And I told him he was a liar. Friend, that's about right. Anybody...
who's teaching that for someone to be saved, all they got to do is teach the say the sinner's prayer, teach them something that isn't in the Bible. Well, let's talk about a couple more doctrines, specifically that Christians, by the example of Jesus from refuting error, should also be well equipped in. The idea of once saved, always saved is a very popular doctrine today. Many people will say, once you obey the gospel, there is nothing you can do. In fact, some writers, and logically so, would go on to say, even if you wanted to, you couldn't go to hell. One writer said, if I debauched a thousand women, if I killed my own mother, I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. That's the logical conclusion of this idea. Now, most wouldn't take it that far, but a whole lot of people believe in once saved Always saved. Also known as can't fall from grace. You know what's amazing about doctrines like these? And this is a, this is a great testament to the inspiration of the scriptures. God, in the exact language of false doctrine, refuted it thousands of years before. Let me show you in Galatians chapter 5, verse number 4. Just a couple of passages to have in your Bible, to have on your mind, so that we can follow the example of Jesus and refute religious error. Galatians chapter 5. I want you to look with me in verse number 4. Now, some of the ways this is worded, people will say, you can't fall from grace. You've often heard that. I've heard that. Just can't sin or can't fall from grace. Here's the exact language God uses. Galatians 5, verse number 4. Writing to Christians, Galatians 1, verses 1 through 3, who have tried to go back to the old law, Paul says, watch this now, you have become estranged. Little Greek word means you've been cut off. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, now watch this, you have fallen from grace. Isn't that amazing? The doctrine specifically says and is known as can't fall from grace. And God, thousands of years before that doctrine even came about, said in the Bible to Christians who are trying to go back to the old law, you have fallen from grace. And the idea is not just away from, but out of. The realm of God's grace. Now, second passage is Acts chapter 8. You've got Simon the sorcerer. Simon obeys the gospel. He becomes a Christian. And yet, almost immediately, Simon falls back into sin. And so Peter points out that he's in sin. And I want you to notice what's said in Acts chapter 8. Is it the case that a child of God could so sin after receiving God's grace that he could be lost? Well, friend, there's no doubt about it. When you read Acts chapter 8, verse 20, watch what Peter says here. But Peter said to Simon, watch this now, your money perish with what? With you. Uh-oh. His money was going to perish, but what else was going to perish? Your money perish with you. Your heart's not right in the sight of God. You've got neither part nor portion in this matter. Repent and pray that the evil thought of your heart might be forgiven you. Men say you could never be lost after obeying the gospel. And right here in the Bible, and it's been there all along, God said, Simon, you're in sin and your money and you are both going to perish. All right, let me mention a third doctrine, especially that Christians might want to be equipped on, and that is the doctrine of faith only. A lot of people say that to be saved, all you've got to do is believe in Jesus, just have faith, just have a warm feeling, just have love in your heart for God, and all you've got to do is believe in Him. Well, is that what the Bible says? 
Now here's another one of those things that really stands out. In the very words of the false doctrine, God again refuted this thousands of years before. In fact, did you know this? You want to make a note in your Bible next to this. Look in James chapter 2. This doctrine is known as faith only or faith alone, right? Now here's what's amazing. The words faith only or faith alone only occur one time. Listen now. It only occurs one time in my Bible and yours and God says the exact opposite of what millions are teaching people today. Look in James chapter 2, verse number 24. James 2, verse 24. You want to write down, this is the only usage in the English Bible of the word faith only or faith alone. Watch what it says. You see then that a man is justified just as if I'd never sinned. You see then that a man is justified by works, watch it now, and not by Faith only or faith alone. My friend, that's pretty plain. That's pretty clear. Somebody who believes in that, like Jesus' example, I could say, now I know you've been taught this and I know you believe this, but would you sit down and open the Bible and let's look at these passages together? And friend, in so doing, I would be following the wonderful example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All right, a third example from the life of Jesus is found in Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Would you turn there with me? Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 2, verse number 49, even at an early age, Jesus taught us the importance of putting God and His kingdom above all else. The context is that Jesus has gone with His family for a census. They've gone with the uh, multitude of people. Somehow in the process of that, Jesus has become separated from His parents. They're out and about looking for Him. And so you'll notice uh, John chap- Luke, Luke chapter 2, uh, verse number 45, when they did not find Him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking Him. Now, so it was that after three days, three whole days, He's missing. I don't know about your mama, but mine would have been pulling her hair out, right? After three whole days, he's been missing. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Watch verse 49. And Jesus said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Now, friend, I'd have been grounded. If it had been me and you, we'd have been grounded for a month, right? Jesus leaves the company. He's gone three days. Everybody's searching for him. He's, uh, the, the people that he's with are studying the Bible, studying the scriptures. They're amazed at his understanding answers. And his parents say, What's going on here? Why didn't you tell us what's going on? And so Jesus says, why are you looking for me? As though this ought to be something big. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Friend, what do I learn here from the example of Jesus? I learn that above all else, Jesus was 100% focused on putting God and His kingdom first, even to the exclusion of other things. He was focused on putting God and His kingdom above all else. And friend, what a powerful lesson 
That indeed is for each one of us tonight. What's our, what's our priorities in this life? What's really important to me and you? We've got so many things that pull on us. Our job, uh, family, nothing wrong with any of those. Job, family, recreation, entertainment, uh, civic events that we may be involved in, good things in the community. But uh, when you put that list together, when you think about it in your life and I think about it in mine, okay, here's things that are important, here's things that I've got to do. Friend, I've got to ask myself, and you've got to ask yourself, is God the number one priority? Is above all else being about the Father's business what my life is really about? And friend, if it's not, we need to reorganize our priorities. Why is that? Think about the words of Jesus in Matthew 6.33. Jesus said, seek first. What? First. Seek first the kingdom of God and all His righteousness and all these things. What things? Food, shelter, and clothing. All these things shall be added unto you. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Paul said, in essence, I'm in between a rock and a hard place. I want to go and be with Christ, which is far better, but I know I need to stay here and help you, which is more needful for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Could that be your motto? And could that be mine? Is that our level of commitment to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? A friend, I hope you'll understand the way I'm saying this. And I'm saying it with as much kindness as I know how. But sometimes we let the littlest things keep us from having the level of commitment we ought to have. And I understand we all have difficulties. We all have troubles. I understand that. But friends, sometimes we let too many things get in the way of being about the Father's business. We need to take seriously that responsibility and that privilege. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. What about self? What about what I want? What about all the fun and the interest I've got? Uh Uh-uh. Christ has got to come first. Deny self. We're not saying you can't enjoy life. We're not saying you can't enjoy some of the things of life. But Christ must come before all of that. The kingdom, putting Christ first, going to heaven, that's got to be number one in this life. Now why is that? Because you and I, we promised God it would be that way, right? Look in your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Did you know that when you obeyed the gospel, that's what you were promising God? That's what you were committing to when you went down into the waters of baptism. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to look in your Bible in verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Why should God come before all else? Why should being about the Father's business be so serious? Because I promised God. That it would be, and so did you. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know, talking to Christians, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? What do you mean I'm not my own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and and in your spirit, which are His. When I submitted to the will of God, when I obeyed the gospel, when I went down into the waters of baptism, there was a price that was paid. 
The blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary cleansed me of every sin. And the Bible says, in obedience to the Gospel, I made the commitment. Not about me anymore. I'm not my own. I'm living for Christ. I'm going to take up my cross every day and follow the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friend, I will assure you this. There is no greater, more powerful example of anyone who had that level of commitment than Jesus Christ. You think about His life. The the three years of His ministry especially. When Jesus decided to want to go home and get a little rest, where did He go? He didn't have a place to lay His head at times. Uh, did he have a lot of the finer things of this life? Not necessarily. He had God. He had Christian friends, no doubt, good friends as well. But, you know, you look at his level of commitment. Day in, day out. Putting the kingdom first. Working in the kingdom. Spreading the gospel. All of that took priority in his life. And Paul would say in Romans 12, verse 1, I beg you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. All right, let's talk about one more final item that we can learn from the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friend, and, and of all the examples, I think this one is probably one of the most striking and one of the most amazing examples ever. I learned from the, from the life of Jesus, from the example of Jesus, just how much God loves me and just how much God loves you. Would you open your Bible to John chapter 15? What does Jesus teach us by example? What has He taught us? One of the most powerful lessons from the example of Jesus' life is just how much God loves me and you. Look in John chapter 15. And I want you to look at what the Bible says in verse number 13. That's John chapter 15, verse number 13. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, what? That a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. What do I learn about the love of God? What do I learn from the example and the life of Jesus? Friend, you learn how much Jesus loved mankind. You learn how much God loved man. When you hear the words, God so loved the world He gave. He gave His only begotten Son. There's the example. There's the illustration. There's the that living example of how much God loves me. And He loves you. Alright, you got to look at this passage with me. It's one of my favorite. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Probably one of the most graphic images of the love of God and the love of Christ. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to look in verse number 9. Let's illustrate tonight, by the example of Jesus, just how much God and Christ love us. The Bible says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though He was rich, Yet for your sakes He became poor, that we, through His poverty, might be made rich. You ever really stopped and thought about what all that verse is saying? Though He was rich. What's that mean? Jesus was in heaven. The third member of the Godhead was in heaven. Out of the ivory palaces. He let the very place that we are fighting day in and day out to go, Jesus willingly left and came to this earth. Though He was rich, who to do it for? Yet for your sakes. Insert your name there. 
for me and for you. He did that. Though he's rich, yet for your sakes, he became bored. Didn't have a place to lay his head. Didn't have the finer things in life that men have today. Came and lived among his own. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They said, this is Beelzebub. They, they, they eventually would take him to the cross and crucify him. He would hang there in agony. And friend, if that isn't love, if that isn't an example of how much God loves me and you, and I don't know what would motivate or move men to serve God, And so, does Jesus teach us by His example? Friend, you look at the life of Christ. You look at what He did. You look at what He said. And men and women everywhere ought to be motivated to serve God. God, We want you to know this tonight. That the God of heaven and that His Son, Jesus Christ, love you deeply. God wants all men to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4 He wants it so much that He sent His own Son to die on a cruel cross for me and you. And friend, the example of Christ and His great love should be that which compels us. Have you obeyed the Gospel? Friend, here's what we're asking you tonight. You think about the example of Christ. You think about what He did. You think about what He said. You think about the marvelous wonder and splendor of His love. And then let that motivate you to want to serve Him. Are you a child of God? Do you believe Jesus is God's Son? John 8, verse 24, having believed in Christ, would you be willing to repent of sin in your life? Luke chapter 13, verse 3. Would you make the great confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And tonight, to have your sins washed awake, to commit to Jesus the greatest example ever, would you be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Acts 2, verse 38. Maybe tonight you're a child of God and your level of commitment or your desire to follow the example of Jesus has not been what it should. Friend, thank God that He has spared our lives to give us this opportunity that if there is anything tonight that we need to make right, friend, let's do that tonight. We want you to know God loves you and we love you. If you need to obey the gospel, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?